I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Andrew and I were colleagues for a, a little bit, for about four years, I think. And then in a, in a, a stage of, I, I guess it is um, gamekeeper turned poacher, you left Gramophone and went freelance and are now based in, in Denmark. I mean, the first question is, where did your interest and passion for the Nordic countries come from? I was thinking about this today, actually, because I was writing a blog for, um, for Martin at Gramophone. And uh, actually, when I joined Gramophone, I was very struck that there, were, there was a lot of expertise in the areas of music that I really loved, like Wagner, Britain. You couldn't really compete with the, with the names who were writing about those composers. I had an interest in Finnish photography in Norwegian literature, uh, and I'd been to these countries um, um, a few times. And I suppose th there was a sort of synergy of events and feelings and um, opportunity as I, as I saw that maybe I could write about Nordic music for Gramophone. And uh, then the editor, Martin's predecessor, your successor, James Invern, referred to me on a phone call as a Nordic music expert, and I overheard him. So I, I, I sort of thought at that point, well... So you were if, forced into it, basically. Yeah, if he thinks it, then maybe I should give it a go. Um, but yeah, it came from non-musical things. I was quite late to the sort of canon composers Grieg, uh, Sibelius, Nielsen. But um, when I did come to them, I, I've sort of felt very strongly that this was an area that wasn't really being covered, that was, there was opportunity for it to be written about and for certain links to be made. And then, of course, I started writing on the, on the staff of Gramophone about Carl um, Nielsen in particular, Rue Langor, the Danish composer, and Sibelius, obviously a huge figure, I guess one thing really led to another. And, and out of pure commercial kind of skullduggery or, or um, opportunism, I thought maybe there's a chance about, uh, that I could write about these composers with gramophone. So the, so the book focuses on six countries. We've got the three official Scandinavian countries, so yeah. Denmark, Norway and Sweden, yeah. plus Finland, and then intriguingly the Faroe Islands, and Iceland. Yes, so we, that's we'll right. Come to that. And uh, Greenland, obviously the, the largest Ooh. island in the world. I've never been there, so I'm afraid I don't write about. <laughs> I don't know what the music sounds like. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people's sort of interest and knowledge of Scandinavia has sort of, in the last I don't know, ten, fifteen years, been filtered through all these Scandi noir programs that have been coming mm. out. Which I mean, do you, as somebody who lives in Denmark, I mean, how accurately? I mean, what sort of insight do they give into? Scandi culture, or is it kind of warped? I mean, I remember the first time I went to, to Copenhagen was amazed at how light it was, because if you watched, I think it was The Bridge, the whole thing was filmed in pitch darkness, or maybe it was The Killing, I can't yes, remember Yes, yeah, I, I, absolutely, The Killing, you know, I remember in the years before, I mean, I moved to Denmark in 2015, and The Killing was on TV in the years running up to that, and ever, it was always nighttime, it was always raining, and everyone was always kind of like angst-ridden and miserable. And I remember arriving in Copenhagen for the first time to live there, April 2015, the sun seemed to just shine all night and everyone was extremely happy. All the people were swimming in all the harbours and the same actors 
from the killing were playing kind of, you know, goofy um, roles in romantic comedy. Well, you do kind of realise that once you once you consume quite a few of these Scandi Noir things, that actually there only appear to be about a dozen actors in the whole yeah. of Denmark. Of they pop yeah. up in absolutely, yeah. absolutely everything. But I mean, th this is an interesting thing because one of the things I really wanted to explore in the book is whether this idea of Scandinavian melancholy, angst from Søren Kierkegaard, is a sort of construct that we project onto the countries because we obviously project ideas of uh, fiesta and, and brightness onto southern European cultures. And, you know, academics tell us that we project similarly dark ideas onto the cultures of the north. And I think to some extent, you know, that's very true. We do do that. I also think that so many of the stereotypes we have about Scandinavia, the way of life, the literature, the music are actually relatively accurate. And it's, it's not enough to say that, obviously. I try in the book to to use my experience there and my life there to argue the case as to why I think my, my preconceptions have either been, you know, slightly realigned or changed altogether or, you know, just reinforced. Mm. But it's there, you know, you, you, it's undeniable. And one of the big, one of the most fascinating things about Scandinavian music, of course, is how can it be so beautiful and yet so miserable at the same time? And Sibelius is a great example of that, you know, a, a composer who seems to be constantly you know, sort of striving to escape the kind of torture of his own thoughts. It, it struck me that that was quite an interesting thing. Because there's one work that kind of re re reappears throughout the book, and that's yeah. Sibelius's Tapiola, yeah. which was his, his last major work. Yeah. And then thereafter, for about 30 years, it was silence, and, mm -hmm. and which, which in, its, in, its own, you know, in its own way makes that a, a sort of extraordinary work. But, I mean, what is it about Tapiola that... Because it's, it's a sort of, almost a sort of monothematic piece yeah. and it doesn't really move but it sort of seethes and writhes and yeah. I listened to it on the train coming up today and I just thought god that's such an incredible piece of music yeah I mean it's a piece of music like none other you know it has no tune it stays in one key for its entire 17 minutes which at the time was pretty much unheard of I mean it changes key in the, fi in the mm. final bar I remember I was actually it's the first story in the book I was in a forest in um, Pietasari up in Ostrobotnia on, on the west coast of Finland yeah and I was walking through this forest with um, a couple of Finns, and one of them is a musicologist, and he said, he mentioned Tapiola. I, I had to also been listening to it in the build-up to that trip, and I, I came back with a very strong impression, and I thought I must get in touch with Gramophone, and, well, I was working at Gramophone at the time. I must ask my peers at Gramophone if I can write a feature about Tapiola, but of course I could never really get a handle on what it would be, and in a kind of magazine sense, you know, how would it sit in a magazine like Gramophone? The answer, I guess, is that it wouldn't. It deserved a whole book. I think... The book is, in as many ways, sort of hinges on Tapiola as much as anything. And, I mean, it's really, it's doubly interesting, Tapiola, because it prefaced Sibelius's own silence, you know, these 30 years you mentioned where he didn't write anything. But it also, there's a great quote from the, the musicologist Glenda Dawn Gloss in which she says, Sibelius reduced his musical material so much until in the end there was none. So the piece just... He, it wrote him out, you know. He couldn't, mm. he couldn't write anything afterwards. He tried to, and if you listen to the fragments of what he tried to write, they sort of resemble slightly halfway between Tapiola and The Tempest, the piece he wrote at the same time. You know, the attempts to form a new language but not really able to, to, to sort of make it coherent. After a few years in Copenhagen, I was going to a lot of these um, new music festivals and hearing a lot of music that was very, very minimal and very quiet and sort of you know, almost treated noise as a discourtesy, you know, like the, the one thing a composer can't do is break the silence, but of course they have to break the silence. Mm. And then I got into my head the idea that um, Tapiola sort of 
was the colon before the rest of the you know 20th century Nordic music and, and even into the 21st. I feel the legacy even stronger now. And I mentioned this to a, an Icelandic composer, Bara Gisladotter, who, who's in the book. I went to, her, to see a piece of hers performed in a church in Copenhagen, this extraordinary um, basilica, Grundvigskirke, um, outside uh, Copenhagen, the biggest church in Denmark. And she wrote this piece, Vidya, which is a sort of howling gale. And I think I, I said to her, you know, oh, it really reminded me of a a treeless tapiola and, and um, I'm sure you know I think I wrote in the review actually um, clearly influenced by tapiola and she just messaged me on Facebook saying I've never heard tapiola <laughs> <laughs> so you know I, I think it, it, it was a theory worth uh, <laughs> worth probing but you know it, it, you have to sometimes mm. you have to take a step back in this game and realize that you hear things the way you want to hear yeah them. yeah so in your in your own sort of life story you know you, you developed this passion for for uh, scandinavia and the nordic countries you know we we sent you up there regularly as did other magazines yeah but i mean that that's quite a big jump to then actually deciding to move there yeah well i mean i wanted to go freelance and i, I sensed that if i had two markets i would it would be an easier ride so if i could write for the english media and then be a correspondent for another country where there was lots of stuff happening that people weren't necessarily hearing about, then I might get an easier, more commissions. I was looking for a city where there was no opera critic because I wanted free opera tickets. So I wanted to... <laughs> it's, all, it's all coming out now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wanted to be somewhere where there was no English language opera correspondence so I could hoover up mm -hmm. um, the opera reviews for the sort of uh, English market. And... I'd, I was already working for a magazine in, in Copenhagen, Classic, and I'd been there. And, you know, you, you, you don't need to spend much time in Copenhagen to realise it's a great place to live. So I did a flat swap with my flat here in London and, uh, for a year and then just stayed after that year. I actually asked Gramophone for a sabbatical. Um, and I'm very grateful for you saying no, because I would have, that would have meant I would have had to come back. So, I mean, do you, presumably, you know, being based in Denmark, it gives you, you know, it gives the advantage that you're, as it were, on the ground. But in yeah. a way, you're still slightly an outsider in that you're, you know, you are not Scandinavian. You know, yeah. I mean, do, do, has that helped, do you think? Has that opened doors that, that you know, maybe a, a sort of native might not Yes, I mean, I think one of the things I was most surprised about is if you emigrate, then you of, course, you, of course, you learn more about the country you leave than you do about the one you arrive in. I mean, to a certain extent, I found it very difficult. I think many immigrants in Denmark, and you know, I say this as a white European struggle, mm -hmm. I feel for my friends and colleagues who I shared language school, state language school in Denmark, you're all lumped into the same class. And... I try to deal with this 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 this, like, this problem of ra of Nordic racism in the book because the Scandinavians love to think that you know they're 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 the kind of most just um, liberal open uh, society in the world but they, they they do really struggle in Denmark with reconciling this sort of bullish free speech with uh, actually a kind of like a modern really serious you know. E equality of vision to everyone in the world. Mm. I mean, well, they, but they do kind of beat, them up, beat themselves up slightly over this, in, certainly in their dramas. I mean, yeah. they are prepared, you know, to kind of lift the, lift the lid and, and yeah. you know, actually reveal, you know, not quite the sort of the perfect paradise yeah. society that, you know, they may want to... They're constantly trying... This, this is the thing that, that, that fascinates me. I mean, they have this huge complacency in Scandinavia. We just do everything brilliantly, even though we, we, we're not supposed to say that out loud. And yet they're also um, extremely complacent, you know, about what they've achieved. And I, the reason I say this to answer your question is that people still 
colleagues of mine in Copenhagen still say to me, oh, are you still here? <laughs> I've been here for seven years. And, and um, what is it you do again? Who is it you write for again? I mean, I don't blame them for not seeing because mostly I'm writing in English. One thing I, I think that I take my hat off to them for is that they value an outside perspective on their uh, cultural life hugely because um, they haven't had it so much. Also, another theme of the book is to try and discuss this idea that, especially in Norway, you know, the, the, the cultural infrastructure has really been built in the last 20 years. Mm. This is, a, you know, all the opera houses and concert halls in Norway are new, or a lot of them. They're, it's a country that's matured so quickly. And I think they've welcomed sort of a wave of uh, foreign musicians into Norway from around the world, just as the rest of the world has experienced this kind of tsunami of Nordic musicians. Um, so it's a very interesting dynamic mm. there. And uh, Norway, you know, is it, it, so, so fiercely traditional and so fiercely sort of um, protecting of its own traditions. And yet, in a way, it's the most open, I would say, of all the Scandinavian countries, mm. at least. Mm. I mean, of the Nordic countries, I mean, it's Finland that seems to be, well, I mean, it, it kind of churns out top-class conductors. Yeah. But I mean, you know, some serious composers as well. I mean, mm. what, why do you think... I mean, we can, I mean I'm, there are certain reasons, I'm sure, behind the conductor business. I mean, mm. Jorba Panula, this sort of extraordinary figure who plucks people out of orchestras, says, you're a conductor, and then yeah. basically creates them. Yes. I mean, the simple answer is that there's an orchestra in every town. So if you want to be a conductor or a composer, you just... I mean, I was speaking to uh, one Swede and one Finn, and both of them said that they, they composed because the orchestra in their local town invited them to write for them. You know, now these, are, these women are writing for the proms and for the San Francisco Symphony, and, you know, there's the, the kind of... There's a certain sense, and it's the same in Denmark, if you're, if you're a graduate of the composition course at the Royal Danish Conservatory, you will be offered, like, a full symphony orchestra recording on the national record label. That's just the way things are. There's, it's, it's the luxury of being in small countries, but also in, in the case of Finland, you know, a country which has this incredible ratio of orchestras to people. Because there's that amazing, um, I mean, on, on the conductor front, that was that statistic about, you know, how many British orchestras had a Finnish principal conductor or guest yeah. or designate at one point. I mean, pretty well all the BBC orchestras do. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly something about temperament, conductors' temperaments. And um, I spoke to Alan Davey, the, who is it, the guy at the BBC who's in charge of all the BBC orchestras. I mean, worth saying, in 2018, every single BBC orchestra and its choir either had a Nordic chief conductor or chief guest conductor or had announced the, arrival, the imminent arrival of one. So the BBC has been completely dominated by, by this, and it's an absolute phenomenon. And um, Alan Davey, who is in charge of the Radio 3 and the BBC orchestras, he said to me at one point in 2015, they, they, in 2015, they had 16 studio recordings of the Sibelius Violin Concerto stacked up, ready to broadcast <laughs> from their various orchestras. Davey has also had, has some really interesting ideas about temperament in relation to Nordic literature. He studied the Icelandic sagas at university, and he has some certain ideas about this kind of restraint, this buttoned-up temperament that Nordic conductors tend to bring to orchestras. I mean, I think it's a little more about plain speaking, about sort of management style these days, which is a lot more, you know, quiet leadership. I mean, traditionally, as a, as a country, you know, we have been incredibly open, we, the British, have been incredibly open to Nordic music. I mean, primarily yeah. Sibelius and Nielsen, you know, yeah. some of the earliest recordings of both composers were recorded here. You know, we've always had a kind of tradition of appreciation, you know, 
back through Beecham, carry on when he was in London, you know, right up to sort of Mark Elder, Anthony mm. Collins, I mean, Colin Davis, you name it. I mean, why do you think that was? I mean, is it a temperament thing or just happenstance or? I think it's a temperament thing. I mean, there's certainly some parallels with Edward Elgar there, the, the most obvious English symphonist. I think the British have always been very open to music from around the world and from, of all genres, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way certain pockets of, of um, music um, have taken off, like West Indian music, for example, in, in, in little areas of Britain and, and made their own kind of um, subgenre, I think is really interesting. And uh, I think it's just good old English, British open-mindedness of what was. Mm. I don't know if, the, if, that's, if that's still the case, but I'd struggle to make any kind of tangible links, I think, uh, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it could. I mean, it could also be. I mean, you know, certainly with the gramophone, you know, we had, you know, Robert Layton for many years, who was, you know, preeminent in a, yeah. in in championing. I mean, Sibelius primarily. Yeah. I mean, the reason it's an interesting question is because Sibelius's music is so very differently built in an architectural sense. And this is something that I try and get to the bottom of. You know, it doesn't operate by the kind of argumentative rules of the Germanic symphony. So you have orchestras who um, just can't play it. And, you know, there was a recent kind of, it, this has gone down in, in Nordic music circles and sort of in notoriety when the Vienna Philharmonic went on a tour playing some Sibelius uh, recently, 2016, 2017. And some of the concerts were broadcast on television in the Nordic region. And you could see the musicians sort of looking at, at the score in the performance, looking at each other and kind of, what is this? You know, laughing almost at it. And um, Zachary Omo, I saw him shortly afterwards and we talked about this. This is the, the, the Finnish chief conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra. It's so interesting. The, the, the syntax is different. The way the orchestra's ragged so that different parts of it are moving, uh, have different rhythmic agendas at the same time to, to other parts of it. It's very unheard of. In, um, and you can just play it as it's written, you know, but it won't really work. Mm, mm. Um, if you think, if you have a, a conductor or even better, an orchestra without the conductor, you can think of this ragging, you know, the way the sort of... I think of it as a sort of riverbed. Sorry, it's getting very uh, <laughs> nerdy, but the riverbed, you know, Sibelius' symphony is like a kind of riverbed. The rate of flow of the water is determined, obviously, by the, by the width and shape of the, of the, the base mm. and um, what's happening underneath these tectonic uh, kind of um, shapes underneath. So, yeah. Because it must be, I mean, it, that must be as much a temperament thing for the, for the Viennese, because, you know, in their guise as the orchestra who play in the opera house, they play, you know, phenomenal repertoire. I mean, you know, yeah. people always say, oh, the Vienna Philharmonic, you know, they, but they actually, as an opera orchestra, they play all sorts of stuff, including yeah. some really quite gritty contemporary music. Yeah. Well, I think it's also about actually letting it be a little mm. sloppy, letting it sort of um, find its own rhythm, which some really good, some very work, hard-working orchestras don't necessarily do because, you know, yeah. every night they're just yeah. uh, trying to get everything lined up. Yeah. There was, there was one quote in the book that um, sort of leapt out at me sort of reasonably early on. It says, the world's collective view of Scandinavia is actually a view of Sweden, which I thought was quite provocative and, and, and thought-provoking. Yeah, and, and Sweden's an interesting, interesting one because, you know, this is the one country that hasn't produced a great composer. Which is strange, really, because it's a great big imperial... I mean, you've only got yeah. to go to Stockholm and you realise you're in a kind of very grand, very traditional... Yeah you know, very wealthy city. Mm -hmm. It's funny because um, there's this kind of formality in Sweden, which um, is very, very in contrast to life in Denmark. And I've been thinking about this. And, you know, of course, Sweden um, 
is extremely dominant in like non-classical music, pop music, dance music, um, and American pop music in particular. There's a handful of music producers who kind of have complete control of the of you know the this, the American pop music market. They actually all uh, came out of this. Um, movement in Sweden which was to try and kind of desexualize and, and make music kind of more homespun and more humble so they set up these um, these kind of after school groups for, for Swedes to, to where they could learn instruments and of course that led to ABBA and then of course ABBA led to um, these um, producers um, but yeah Sweden is, is a sort of an incredible kind of it sets the rest of the to the Nordic region in relief I think somehow mm. and we do think of them as these beacons of uh, you know, humanitarianism, and they are, mm. they really are. And it's, it's they who have stuck to this. I mean, the, I guess the central tenet of the book is, is this idea that in the Nordic countries, culture it should be part of the welfare state, and that in a flat society, you should experience the arts as a sort of, just like you should experience newspapers or library or medicine or general education as something that can kind of irrigate your your life and, and keep keep you maintain your ability to sort of question and navigate your way through um, even politics. Mm. And Sweden is the is the one Nordic country that has sort of really stuck religiously to this. There's a great anecdote. You, you turn on Swedish TV on the weekend and there's very very hardcore culture programming on a Saturday night, for example, on um, the equivalent of BBC Two, live theatre from broadcast from um, you know Germany, subtitled or live opera from, from somewhere, subtitled. Mm. The, the favourite anecdote is that they, in Denmark is that they don't even check the ratings on this stuff. They don't even care how many people are watching because that's not the point, because it should be there. Yeah. And, um, and uh, it's for everyone to sort of fall into. Mm. And the, I think one of the, one of the interesting things that, that I've experienced in, in Scandinavia is how the media is moving to this place where you choose what you want to watch. You know, you, With Flow TV disappearing, you think, well, I want to watch this series on Netflix or I want to watch this show on HBO. You don't really fall into a curious performance anymore no. like you did perhaps. And, and I think uh, Sweden is determined that, you know, its people, its populace will maintain this uh, flow TV habit and fall into a kind of Strindberg play or a Wagner opera or something on a Saturday night and then, you know, that will set them on the path to <laughs> cultural enlightenment. I mean, is it tremendously naive in a sense, but it's also... Yeah, kind of, but, but, it, I mean, but it used to work. I mean, that's what yeah. the BBC was back in the day and you would yeah. suddenly stumble across something. It's a bit like reading The New Yorker. You know, you turn the page and here's an article you would never in a million years yeah. go in search of, but it's there and you read it. Yeah. And that's kind of the equivalent. Uh-huh. I mean, one of the most fascinating um, sections of the book is, is the, the Faroe Islands. Mm. How did you sort of end up there? Because I mean, it sounds the most extraordinary music scene. Yes, it's sort of like Iceland's music scene in microcosm. Maybe just first we should talk about Iceland. You yeah, know? No. It's, a, it's a country where um, you go to a string quartet performance and Björk will be there. And like a random sort of octogenarian Icelandic composer will be chatting to her at the bar. And it's so small that it, it, it forms this incredible kind of petri dish where people of all genres are forced to mix together. And there's a respect for music, regardless of its genre, yeah. between the musicians. Yes, precisely. And there's only one higher education institution in Iceland where you can study music. And so, of course, everyone ends up playing the same, um, you know, everyone who's studying music from whichever discipline ends up sharing. And then uh, you shrink that down to the Faroe Islands, and it's just the same thing, but in a much smaller, more um, pronounced, obvious form. And I was invited there to go to the Faroese Music Awards. 
I guess, uh, five years ago or so. And the music is brilliant there. You know, they have this folk tradition of chain dancing where they sort of, they recount their mythology via these sort of chanted songs, which are danced really more than chanted. And then there's an extraordinary tradition of sort of gothic pop musicians in the line of uh, Björk. And then there's um, this incredible composer, Sunlev Rasmussen, who writes like huge kind of writhing, sprawling symphonies. And then there's one man, Christian Black, who has kind of united everyone together with this thing called Tuttle, which is like a music shop, a record label, a ticket agency, a festival organization, and a kind of like a live performance space in the middle of Torshavn, the capital. And you just need to like drop in there and let the music kind of flow over you, really. It's very unusual. And I think that what I find most fascinating about Faroese music, and it's to some extent Icelandic music, is it, it hasn't yet been infected by the sort of industry, you know. I mean, music and the music industry are two very different things. Mm. And in the Faroe Islands, music is first and foremost a kind of community pursuit. It's something you do with, with your fellow islanders. It's something you do to, to mark the change in the seasons, uh, to sort of bind yourselves together with this sort of... I mean, is that partly also that, that I mean, so many countries have, have completely lost touch with the sort of folk tradition. I mean, we in the, in the UK, you know, I'm sure we're utterly detached from it. But yeah. in Scandinavia, there still seems to be, a, you know, there are still some sort of ties between yeah. the folk tradition. Or, you know, in certain countries, they almost sort of invented a folk tradition. I mean, it's like Carl Nielsen yeah. writing all those songs that have now become part of Danish culture. Yeah. I think it was very interesting what happened in Denmark when the COVID pandemic struck. Like in England, the state broadcaster in Denmark has been under attack from um, some sort of political factions who rightly or wrongly think that state broadcasting has kind of had its day and that it should be you know, left to sort of the commercial sector. And it happened at a perfect time, I think, for, for Denmark's state broadcaster, DR, because COVID struck and they immediately sort of proved what a state broadcaster can do in, in times like that. And they put on this, they started broadcasting on, live on Friday nights, this uh, program called Felisang, which is sort of singing together. And it would start with a guy at piano who would kind of, you know, say, okay, well, warm up and sing your uh, scales. And then they would have um, washed up pop musicians, kind of school teachers, kids, the radio choir and stuff, sing songs, which, and you know, the idea was that you'd sing along at home and they'd shoot footage of people on their balconies all across the country singing along. And the two kind of figures who formed, were most prominent in this were Carl Nielsen, the composer, who wrote all these songs that Danes still sing, and Kim Larson, who's a kind of great, I'm trying to think of an equivalent really, in, in maybe Bob Dylan, but not, but not really Bob Dylan, a kind of like folk rock singer who sang songs, the sort of songs that, that you'd echo around a football stadium. And so, um, yeah, that was it, really. You'd have Dane singing, Kim Larson, Carl Nielsen, and then a few other Eurovision hits. And then they kind of um, made it permanent, and then it replaced X Factor. And then it was sort of this... I, th I think I was, we were really struck that, you know, music is a sort of... It, it can be a cross-generational bonding agent, you know. Really, if you can't sing together as a nation anymore. I mean, you have to be very careful because, of course, there were Danes who came from, who come from very different traditions, who have emigrated from countries many miles away, who have their own very distinct musical traditions that are just as beautiful. And the, I guess the argument is these, it's very easy to feel frozen out if, if everything's about Carl Nielsen and Kim Larsen. Mm. But there, there was a good attempt to bring in, to sort of make it, 
universal. And I think the music itself helps with that. And of course, there's also the thing that as an immigrant to Scandinavia, it seems a bit colonial, but you, even as a white male immigrant to Scandinavia, you, you can be kind of looked on as an outsider, even if you speak the language. But if you can sort of sing one of their songs and, and you know the moves to one of their dances, then immediately you're kind of okay. And I think a lot of people who have struggled to integrate, and that's not a nice word, but have struggled to sort of find their place in Scandinavia, have at least been able to use that to sort of get in. And of course, the folk tradition, if you think about the pentatonic scale, the way certain Scandinavian European folk music is, it's actually more closely related to traditions from the other side of the world than we think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, the other, I mean, the other anecdote I, I enjoyed the, um, about for the Carl Nielsen um, anniversary where people were encouraged to sort of reinterpret Nielsen yeah. songs, mm. which you couldn't really imagine, you know, pop singers in this country, you know, suddenly taking a Vaughan Williams song and singing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And partly because, because of the way the music is built, that's what made it possible. And partly because, I mean, you asked me when we did our last, our last podcast, you were sort of getting at the, what is it that, that makes um, avant-garde Scandinavian music more palatable than its, perhaps its Viennese, German, British, French equivalents. And we were talking about this idea that, um, you know, if you're an artist who basically gets their salary paid by the state, it feels a little awkward if you're um, writing music that your kind of next-door neighbour would run a mile from hearing. The kind of miracle of the Nordic region is that they've managed to find a way of writing progressive, beautiful, like very um, rigorous uh, avant-garde music that somehow is sort of palatable. I mean, I don't mean in a kind of like... I mean, a lot of it is still tonal. I mean, it's stretched to the, the yeah. limits, but it yeah. is tonal music. Yeah, it's a kind of reinvention of tonality or, or a reinvention of certain structural kind of principles that mean you don't have to jump through some of the hoops of the sort of Darmstadt crew we're having to jump through. Yeah, I think that's something that Nordic composers have felt quite strongly, mm. that they, it's somehow inappropriate to, to alienate people. The other one, one of the other quotes, that uh, this is from Montesquieu, which is, um, climate determines the character of a nation. And mm. here you're dealing with, you know, quite a few nations, well, a handful of nations. I mean, is yeah. that very much, do you, do you think climate does? I mean, you know, mm. if you go up into the sort of the very, very northernmost part of the Nordic countries or Iceland. I think it does. I, th I think Scandinavians and, and Finns are very good at, um, you may disagree, but indulging the mood they're in. You know, you kind of, winter is, is tough and you get through it by, by being a little bit miserable, you know, and acknowledging that and uh, sort of, you know, going with it in a sense. And then there's a sort of wildness that comes in the summer. And again, a sort of, you know, they let loose in the summer. In musical terms, hmm. I mean, Iceland is the prime example where you hear everywhere in Icelandic music, you hear Iceland. And um, it's, it's still, you know, it's the only nation really where you can identify the nationality of the composer through mm. the music. You know, that's Icelandic. And even if you go back to someone like Jörn Leifs, yeah. which is kind of really pretty out there stuff, and it took a long yeah. time for people to listen to his music because he was just considered beyond yeah. the pale and, and left. And really interesting, you know, when you think of Jörn Leifs, you know, the, the, the kind of patriarch of Icelandic music who laid these sort of foundations, and then along comes Björk and uses so many of the same uh, techniques that Leif uses, like the, the parallel fifths, these kind of uh, rhythmic isotopes she uses and isorhythms. 
and the fact that she really tries to sort of unlearn the, the polite language of like Western European music, exactly the same way that Leif's tried to convince Iceland, you know, we don't need to play by the European rules. We can do things our own way. You know, we don't have to have anything regular in our music. We don't have to prepare our modulations. We can just stride through whichever key we want, chord to chord. And um, I think it, uh, for me, um, just sort of going into Björk's music was fascinating because She's closer to Leif's, I think, than, than many Icelandic composers that have followed. Mm, mm, mm. And, and in, a different, in a completely different genre. I mean, we've, we've talked primarily about music, but I mean, the book you know, doesn't just focus on music. I mean, it is lovely to read a book, actually, that's sort of multidiscipline. You know, you talk about architecture, you talk about design, uh, a little bit about literature, film, music. And it's also nice to read a book where actually all the stuff about music is right. Because so often when you read books that are, you know, multidisciplinary, it's always the music that kind of lets it down. They always kind of get it wrong, just kind of slightly wrong. And it's nice to know, you know, we're reading a book by somebody who knows their music. But, you know, you're also passionate about architecture and, you know, and, and write very beautifully about some of these incredible buildings that have popped up, you know, often opera houses, often concert halls. Yeah. I mean, is there a relationship, do you think, I mean, in design terms, between the aesthetic of the architecture and the aesthetic of music or dress design or fabric or mm. all the various other things you touch on? Yes, I think so. And one of the, one of the things that, um, one of the theories that I've been, try, been sort of trying to come to terms with in, over the last few years is this idea of functionalism in music, you know. And if you see a great functionalist building that shows its workings and that has a sort of certain um, natural beauty to it, that um, you can certainly trace that to schools of Nordic music. I mean, I should say, you know, none of the generalizations I'm making incorporate everything. There's so many different strands. And um, I, all, all I've done in, in the book is try to sort of trace some parallel lines. But I think that... Um, I try to talk about functional architecture. The opera house in Malmo, just across the bridge from Copenhagen, is this beautiful kind of marble opera house that's, um, you know, a kind of functionalist kind of dream, really. Every seat has a perfect view. It's very sort of um, egalitarian. It's quite squat, municipal. It's sort of social democratic culture policy given physical form. It doesn't feel grand in any way. And, and you know, this was in the 1940s. In the, in the 40s and 50s, this was when sort of modern Nordic music as we know it was almost born, I would say, mm. because you had a whole generation of composers. Sibelius was kind of in his silence. Nielsen was, was dead. There was an impasse. Darmstadt was going on, the European avant-garde. And, uh, and I think Nordic composers thought, well, you know, what, how are we kind of to get out of this? Because we can't, um, we didn't, they didn't feel quite comfortable on the Darmstadt path. So this um, idea of functionalism in music emerged these systems that certain composers use, like Per Nurgor, and uh, ideas that you know you, a piece should show its workings, and um, however complex it should be, it should always be as simple as possible. And yeah, I mean, this is another thing that I think makes Nordic music quite distinctive. There's various quotes, um, or various sort of, not quotes, but sort of principles or, or, or kind of theories that, that Nordic composers have put forward as to, you know, what should be done and how it should be done. And thankfully, mercifully, importantly, there's always a, a counter movement that sort of throws the kitchen sink at everything because, you know, that's how it should be. Mm. Um, but it's interesting when you think of the, the sort of the contemporary Nordic music that is the avant-garde music from the sort of 50s and 60s that's still being played in Copenhagen. I'm thinking of pieces like... Uh, Per Nurgård's The Voyage of the Golden Screen, Per Nurgård's Second Symphony, Hans Abrahamsen, I guess from the generation afterwards, <laughs> pieces by Pelle Gunnarsson, Holmgren. These are all pieces, they have that sort of functional principle behind them. 
I think we've probably almost reached the point where we'd be taking, mm. you know, do join in. Before, before we do that, we, we, we missed our opportunity to, for a little, a little anecdote because um, Andrew and I were in Odensee in, in Denmark earlier this year. We were both introducing various bits of the Carl Nielsen competition and we saw some, you know, fantastic players and all the rest of it. But actually for me, the highlight of the entire 10 days I spent there was that the guy who was actually directing all the filming, and it was beautifully done, turned out to be Kasper Langer, who plays Kasper Langer in Borgen, or Borgen, or Born, as they call it. A very cool guy indeed. I mean, yeah. everyone was having their, taking their photographs with him. Yeah. <laughs> I think that when we think of Scandi culture, so much of the time we think of it in terms of ideas of purity and simplicity, influenced by quotes from... Sibelius and, and the shape of Nordic architecture. Actually, I think that the cover of the book rather reflects that yeah. with its extremes of black and white. And I wonder the degree to which Nordic culture, how much it managed to dissociate itself from ideas of racial purity, blood purity, yeah. that so many of its early exponents, not just Sibelius, that uh, frankly inspired so much of this music and art to begin with yeah. how much Nordic culture has moved on from those yeah well I mean I think that to some extent the composers who were into that have largely fell by the wayside I, I tend to think of it in more social democratic terms so I think that the whole project I mean there's a passage in the book about um, Kurt Atterberg the, the Swedish composer who went to the big Nazi uh, music conference that, that Richard Strauss uh, mm. hosted. When was it? In, in 1937 or 8. Yeah. was, um, he, he had some, some very sort of dubious opinions, but he was an idiot. And so he, he mistranslated this word that, that, that the Nazis were using, uh, folkly, you know, which they meant as Aryan. And he, he thought it meant um, everyone together, you know, kind of uh, social democracy. And, and went back to Sweden saying, oh, it's wonderful. They just want us all to be happy and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and everyone to be involved. And uh, in a sense, like the, the social democracy's big problem has been that it came out of the Second World War. And the idea was, I mean, it was feminist led, I guess, to a large degree in the beginning. The idea was that it was, you know, everything should be remade along kind of egalitarian lines. But it didn't um, account for the fact that these very homogenous societies were going to change very rapidly in the kind of later 20th century. All I would say is that I've always thought the aesthetic has been more to do with ideas about design and understanding than about racial purity. And that may be my misreading of history. But I think one of the, very, one of the interesting things is that Denmark in particular, which is the most racist of the Nordic countries, if, we, if I can say that without slandering Denmark, its kind of cultural community is very aware of this and is trying to actively to sort of find ways. Of, I mean, it's all about free speech in Denmark, right? I should be able to call you what I like, because if I can't, that's not free speech. Whereas the more enlightened elements of Denmark society recognize that you know, free speech comes with certain responsibilities. And I think that the composers there right now are, are playing very cannily with that and they're making some very, very interesting gestures. I mean, there's a great example of the piece by Pella Gudmundsson Holmgren, uh, Moving Still, which takes the Hans Christian Andersen poem, Eat Denmark by your foot, in Denmark was I born, and kind of slowly turns it from absolutely European twists it into the kind of Hasidic and then into the Arabic 
and is instructed to be sung in Danish by a non-Danish speaker. And this was a piece that was premiered during the Hans Christian Hansen anniversary. And of course, the right-wing press in Denmark were furious that a poem by Anderson had been um, made into an Arabic song, but the beauty of it was there for everyone to hear. Yeah, I've always sensed that it was, that in, it's a design feature, not an aesthetic. And it is therefore, it's more about you know, ideas of understanding and universality than it is about racial purity. I just wanted to pick up the reception of Nordic music in, in the UK and in the rest of Europe. Yeah. I mean, a, a few years ago, I went to a talk at the German Historical Institute, which is just around the corner from here, about music in the First World War. And I raised a question about Nielsen, you know, the effect on his symphonies, him coming from a neutral country. And it was clear the lecturer who was German simply didn't know Nielsen's work. It wasn't on his radar at all, which would be a very strange thing in a, in a UK context where he very much is. Mm. And I was also told that the way to clear a hall in France is to program some Sibelius mm. because people simply won't go. Mm. Uh, so I, I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about why you think that reception is different in, in the different places in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, there is the, this element we were talking about, the fact that the music is built so differently. So orchestras struggle to play it in those countries. French orchestras never really liked playing Sibelius, and therefore it's not played, so it's therefore you know, not enjoyed and doesn't gather its own uh, moss. I mean, America has always been quite open to Sibelius. Yeah, America has, and it's, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, uh, it's a mystery to me because, I mean, there's something about the Nordic symphony that's quite introspective, and the idea in Sibelius that you know, it's not romantic in the sense that you're not proclaiming your own great deeds. You're just recounting the story of great deeds that have always been recounted, you know. So this is uh, something that the, the, the violinist Pekka Kuzisto has said, you know, when you're playing the Sibelius violin concerto, you're just telling a story that people have always told rather than projecting your own sense of heroic greatness to the world. Um, so there's an anti-virtuosity there. And there's a sort of sense that, yep, this is sort of inner turmoil. And maybe that's just a bit too um, Lutheran and Northern European for French audiences, but then again, they wouldn't explain the, the, the why Americans have always been so interested in surveillance. So, yeah. Well, I suppose, I mean, they've got a huge Scandinavian influx in America. Yeah. So I suppose that's sort of filtered down. But I mean, you know, people like Ormandy, you know, played a lot of surveillance. I yeah. mean, you couldn't imagine, you couldn't imagine the Santa Cecilia Orchestra in Rome playing surveillance. No, so. no. But I mean, also, there's, there's ways of playing it that ignore those, those characteristics mm. I've just mentioned. So there are performances that try to do something different with the music, you know, and try to put it on much more on the front foot to various lesser or greater degrees of success, I would say. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things is, I mean, you know, one of the great champions of, of, of Sibelius, and, and Sibelius was, was, by all accounts, a great fan, was Carian. Yeah. And it's interesting that, I mean, Carian made some amazing recordings of Sibelius, but actually if you look at his concert programs throughout the, the 50s and 60s, he absolutely didn't play it in concert. He played the old little piece, yeah. but he rarely played. He might have played one of the symphonies occasionally. Yeah, and there's also this thing with him is that he didn't record the third symphony, is that right? And, and, and if you think about the third symphony as the most characteristic mm. in a sense, the one where he really hits upon this idea of organic, of kind of, you know, um, tumbling, uh, self-perpetuating development, and yet hasn't maybe got it crystallized to the extent that he has in the fifth or seventh symphonies, that's the would make sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. The, he, fourth, the fourth was the one he kind of thought was the, the Sibelius symphony. Yeah. Chose it for his first concert. So. Mm -hmm. James um, quoted Montesquieu saying that climate determines character. Yeah. And, and I wondered, 
whether you feel that climate determines writer and perhaps reflecting on your writing over the last seven years, whether having been immersed in that world culturally, musically, aesthetically, whether you're aware that your writing has changed, evolved, its, its references, its, its the imagery that you use, the, the way that you communicate. Oh, that's a good question. I think my writing's much simpler than it was, in a way. When I, was, when I started out on gramophone, I mean, you know, because you try to impress, don't you? When you're young, you try to impress. You know, you kind of reach for the thesaurus. And, and, and um, I mean, this is journalism, isn't it? You learn how to tell a story in, in a kind of clear way uh, to try and be spare and to try and use a full stop if you can rather than any other punctuation and, and to try and reflect. But then I've, I, I did read some literature that really helped me with writing about music. Bruce Chatwin and also some, non, some non-musical literature, like the, um, Robert Ferguson, Andrew Brown, these people who've written very eloquently about the Nordic countries. Reading Gramophone, of course. If I'm really honest, like, I think I've always thought quite simply about music and quite, in quite a basic way about it. There are some people in Gramophone who can beautifully, in a very complex way, with lots of like, you know, references and, and kind of concealed literary references kind of they, they can beautifully sort of describe something or hit upon something in a in a concise way that, that pings down plenty of it pings down whole sort of dreams of historiography and interpretation and and cultural history and it's magnificent i've never been able to do that so i've just relied on or just trying to create sort of obvious links and and trying to what i feel is put real life into it when I was working on Gramophone, I was rung up by the Danish Broadcasting Corporation. And they said, could you come on a programme and talk about this CD of new music from Denmark in English? But yeah, so I'll do it in English. So, and I hadn't had long to prepare. And so I sort of road tested this idea about, you know, oh, I've just been to um, St. Catherine's College in Oxford, which is this Arne Jakobsen Gesamtkunstwerk. Like, and it struck me that there were some very similar parallels, you know, with the way the music's arranged and the way, you know, it doesn't trample on anybody aesthetically and it kind of sets out its stall and you can appreciate its formal beauty. You can um, take it or leave it almost. So I think maybe I've learned to, you know, moving to another country, of course, is, is beneficial because it completely rewires your whole kind of cultural psyche and therefore allows you to, to sort of rationalise the things that you probably wouldn't have been able to rationalise before. And that helps. And um, I would have said stylistically, it's a similar, the way you write is a similar style, style to Alex Ross, which comes from journalism, but it's, I mean, a very, very superior form of journalism. There's a kind of simplicity, there's an enormous range of references and you're drawing parallels. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I actually loved reading the book in the same kind of way that I've powered through Alex Ross's writing. So, you know, I think that's the sort of area. Right? Maybe it's a new form of writing about music, but um, I hope it is. And um, Thank you. Uh, congratulations, Mel. It's so nice to see you Thanks, up there Amy. with your book. Um, I just wanted to ask about the process of writing the book, yeah. because it's a bit of a marathon, obviously. Was it? Which bits were a slog? Which bits were exciting? Did you know at the beginning where you were going to go with it? How long did it take you to develop the idea? Mm. And would you do it again? <laughs> yeah. There's the Baltic countries, so that's the, that's the last couple of questions. Sorted I think out. all of it was a slog. What I did was I went to Odense, actually, for a week um, in the summer of 2016, and I read through... Whenever I'd been sent abroad by um, my employers my two magazines I worked for, I used to write like a sort of 1,500-word diary every day, everything that happened. And I went um, away for a week to this little town in Denmark, and I read through all the diaries and pulled out all the bits I thought might be useful. Then I formed a sort of chapter 
rough chapters of plan. I knew I wanted to deal with design. I knew I wanted to deal with Nordic Noir. I knew I wanted to deal with politics. I knew I wanted to deal with various other things. And uh, so I kind of rationalized it into a chapter plan. And then I read a couple of, and actually going back before this, I read a book before I'd even thought of writing a book. I read a book by Robert Ferguson, Scandinavians is called In Search of the Soul of the North, you might know it. And this was to me a very radical format where he would kind of write a cultural history, but he would also say, oh, and then I went to the pub and, you know, I had this to drink and I sat with a maid and we talked about this. So I realized that you could change the genre. You know, you could write something that was memoir, that was travelogue, that was history, that was a pop musicology, if I can call it that. And you could kind of, yeah, so he made me realize I could do it. So then I kind of uh, got a chapter plan together, did a draft chapter, pitched it to publishers. And then writing it was hard because it sort of changed. You know, you know when you start writing, you, everything changes, right? And you think, well, it's not actually going to work out how I expected it at all. So, and then you go down lots of rabbit holes. So you write 2,000 words. I had this massive uh, sequence about Oslo Airport in the book. Like, I worked really hard on it. And then a, a couple of weeks later, I just thought, hang on, like, no, one give, no one cares about Oslo Airport. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the beginning of a chapter. So I thought, well, now I've got to start that chapter again. I was lucky because um, I knew that I wanted to write this epilogue, like a final chapter in which I wanted to sort of deal with, you know, the big questions. I wanted to deal with the Sami, you know, the Sami tribe and the, the way they've been treated, uh, the, social de the twilight of social democracy, the idea that more and more Scandinavians don't think they should pay high tax and believe that everyone should, you know, keep more of their own money and spend it how they like. Whatever you think of that, it's, it's going to have an impact on the culture. And then COVID happened, and it was sort of perfect, really, because COVID crystallized all of that together. Of course, COVID and climate change, especially in the case of the Sami. So I was really lucky that I managed to write all this stuff. And then um, the design chapter, Martin, was telling me for, for years that I should look into the Nordic embassies in Berlin, this, this village of embassies where there's five embassies in one building. And um, I kind of remembered that. And then that became the end of my design chapter. And then the... Um, yeah, the, the, the whole idea of climate change. And in the final chapter, I was unconsciously thinking that I would only write about women musicians. I didn't want to kind of do it as a box ticker, but it just felt that that's just kind of the way it happened. And I thought, actually, that's quite nice that it's worked out like that. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. Buy it. Buy it. <laughs> and... Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.